Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas. Hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to this session of All About Women. I'm Edwina Throsby, and I'm the Head of Talks and Ideas here at the Sydney Opera House, and I'm sitting here with the wonderful Chanel Miller. So I've actually been thinking for weeks about how I was going to introduce this session, um, because actually it's not easy. I'm sitting next to this creative powerhouse who is an amazing illustrator, a printmaker, a drawer, an artist. She does stand-up comedy. She writes so beautifully. And yet, I'm kind of obliged to introduce her by something that happened to her that she didn't choose, that she didn't consent to, and has had to deal with the ramifications of kind of since. And that felt screwed up to me. But here we are to talk about the subject of her book, which, as we know, is about sexual assault and about her sexual assault. Um, I'm, I, I imagine that you all know that that is what we're talking about now, and, and if anybody didn't, for whatever reason, or is in the wrong theatre, now is a good time to leave if it's <laughs> not what you want to talk about. Um, but I think it's important that we come together in public to talk about this, because I think this is one of the problems we have with this topic. It is so shrouded in taboo, and that's a silencing technique. That's what they do to make us not talk about it. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that while it wasn't Chanel's choice to be raped, it is your choice to speak up. That was something that you have done intentionally and after a lot of thought. And you needed to do that, um, both for yourself, but for all of us. And in doing that for all of us, you not only changed the law in California, um, you change the way, as a society, we think and talk about this issue. And I think that's really profound, because I think that's true. I think that there was a shift as a result of this trial, and I thank you so much for that. Chanel Miller, welcome to the Sydney Opera House. Thank you. <laughs> now, I don't know if you have read this book already. If you haven't, it is on sale and Chanel will be signing copies afterwards. But it is such a good book and it is so beautifully written. So what I would actually like to do is start by asking Chanel to read a piece. It's right towards the end, but I think that it's a good place to begin today. Okay. I wrote this book because the world can be harsh and terrible and often unforgiving. I wrote because there were times I did not feel like living. I wrote because the court system is slow as a snail, and victims are forced to spend so much time fighting rather than spending their days creating, drawing, cooking. I wrote to expose the brutality of entitlement, gender violence, and class privilege in our society. But I would be failing you if you walked away from this book untouched by humanity without seeing what I saw. Those thousands of handwritten letters, the green-lipped fish at the bottom of the ocean, the winking court reporter, all the small miracles that sustained me. We may spend half our time wandering around, wondering what we're even doing here, 
why it's worth the effort. But living is an incredible thing. Just to have been here, to have felt, if only briefly, the volume and depth of others' empathy. I wrote, most of all, to tell you I have seen how good the world could be. <laughs> I think that there is such a hope in this book. I, I really do. Um, and, and it charts some dark times. Um, but I don't want to dwell on the night that Chanel was assaulted because um, it's been said enough. Um, and I think sensationalising these stories diminishes the fact that they're really, really, really common. Um, so let's just get it out of the way. Yes. Um, so can you, just in basic terms, get us through like that first experience so we can move on to talk about yeah. what happened next. Yeah, so I graduated from college. I'd moved home and lived with my parents, started my first little entry-level job. And one weekend, my younger sister came home and we decided to go out to this party at a fraternity at Stanford University, which was basically in my backyard. And so we got to this party and we're like dancing, having a good time. The beer tasted like pee, the music was bad, like the bass was like so loud. Um, and there was guys with their like hats on backwards. It was like a whole thing, but it was kind of a good memory, honestly. So my last memory is standing on the patio with my sister and her friends. Um, and the next thing I knew, I woke up in the hospital and I had dried blood on my hands and I had pine needles in my hair, and I was wearing hospital pants. I didn't know how. And when I went to the restroom, I discovered that my underwear was missing. Um, a police officer told me that I had reason to believe I'd been sexually assaulted, which didn't make any sense. Um, so I sort of waited to get the clear, and they said, no, you gotta get a rape kit done. So I thought, fine, I'll just do whatever I need to do so that I can get home faster. So I underwent a multi-hour exam, um, extremely invasive, but in a way nurturing because of the nurses who gave me the exam, um, which is really important. And the detective came after I was done, and you know I had to recall the events of the evening. And I'll also note that his demeanor was really vital to how I presented my story. And I didn't know, but how what I said that morning would come up again and again each time I testified in court. Anytime I said something that deviated from that original story that I told right after getting a rape kit done, I would be pinned. Um, but if the detective hadn't been you know, non-judgmental, I might not have given him anything. I might have flubbed up some of the details and that could have hurt me later on. So I'm just saying like already something was at work and all these details mattered way beyond my comprehension. Um, I was sent home and I got a call and they said, do you wanna press charges? Oh, so I knew that a guy had been at the party and that he'd been acting weird and was chased away and was arrested. I didn't know that he had been found on me or that we had made contact. You had no memory of him at all? 
No, I, st I mean, I don't know who he is. So, um, sorry, I'm trying to nutshell this. So I get home, they said, do you want to press charges? I thought what it meant was, do you agree to like, let the police do what they're supposed to do? Mm. So I was like, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then uh, 10 days passed. I didn't even know what the charges were. 10 days passed and I was at work. And that's when I found the headline. I found out that I had been discovered half naked, that I had been on the ground behind the dumpster. I realized that's why my head was full of all the stuff that's on the ground and um, that I had been fingered and um, taken away in an ambulance. So, and then again, that was a... You found this out from the media, right? Yes. Like no one had actually communicated that to you before they'd communicated it to journalists. Correct. And that had a long-term hurt in that the story was never given to me by a human. And I think so much of how we process what has happened to us is by the signals we receive in our environment. Had someone like sat down for me and told me and looked me in the eye and given me a cookie or given me a hug, I would have understood like, okay, this happened, but I'm supposed to be taken care of now versus this happened and you're on your own and your body's up for grabs. And what it did was establish your relationship with the case, which is as a sort of bit part sidelined kind of, you know, agency-less yeah. object almost, yeah. you know. I mean, that, that was so unimportant that you didn't even deserve to be told before journalists. Right. what had happened. So, so this, is, this is, I think, an important thing to note because it was the beginning of the way your passage through the entire legal system. Um, so just one of the things that you learned from the media was that at some point during the attack on you, um, two Swedish guys came past on bicycles. Yeah. And they, what, what did they do? Um, they saw that something was wrong. They saw him humping me, and they saw that my eyes were closed and that I wasn't moving. Um, so they confronted him and said, what the F are you doing? And he started running. And even before they chased him, they made sure that I was breathing. So already they were prioritizing me. Then one ran after him, did a leg sweep, tackled him. He was struggling to still escape. So the other Swede came and they both just sat on him. <laughs> and um, somebody else called the police. So they, they're like, we'll be here until the police come. Mm. Yeah. So you're in a situation now where you've said that you're going to press charges. Yeah. Right? Um, so this is kind of going, but then you're learning a little bit more about what actually happened. What was the moment where you decided, yes, this is actually something I'm going to do? And, and why did you decide to do that? I think it was always, it was something I couldn't not do. Does that make sense? It wasn't so much a choice as it was, it was not a choice to not do it. Is this making sense? So, <laughs> sorry for the double negatives. I'm just saying that 
I, when it happened, I remember asking the detective, like, how many, does this happen a lot? Like, is this common for you to kind of sit down with a victim and get her story? Like, are you familiar with this type of thing? Um, and he's immediately said, you're in the smallest percentage, that few even get reported and even fewer have witnesses. So I understood from the very beginning that I was in this little sliver. And I felt like, as I met my prosecutor and met all these other people, I felt like they were like, you are the victim treasure. Like, we never get a victim who has evidence, and you're going to take us through. And I felt like I had this responsibility. It doesn't matter anymore if I can't work, if I can't sleep. Like, this happens, this never happens. Um, and it's not luck, but it's more than most victims will ever get. We had a chance. Mm. Um, so then I stayed. You write, too, in your book about a conversation you had with your friend Claire, yeah. um, who is a survivor of assault herself. And she said something to you which I think is interesting. She said, this is your opportunity. Yes. What, do, what, was, she, what was she conveying with that? Um, my friend, when she was in university, had tried to move forward. She had reported her case, gotten the rape kit done, you know, wanted to go on, but was inhibited. You know, there were so many obstacles preventing her from moving forward. They're saying, you don't have enough, or wait, come back. She would call, get no response. Um, and I had spent a lot of time thinking, oh, this is my burden. Like, I've been thrown into the system. I feel like someone just, like, clipped a little leash on me and was, like, dragging me through from court thing to court thing. And, you know, when I heard about her story and she was like, this is your opportunity, I realized all these doors were opening for me that don't often get open for victims. And they were doors to horrible places, but, like, ultimately there was a chance that justice was waiting at the end. But justice kind of, I mean, spoiler alert here, um, justice wasn't really waiting. Um, you know, you had this sort of perfect case and this perfect kind of, you know, set of circumstances that made, you know, your prosecutor and people pretty confident that this could... But do you remember your first day in court? Like, how, how, at what point during the legal process did you go, oh, shit? <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, a lot of shit. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember, so the courthouse is very small. It's this little square building, very stale. And that, I, there's a waiting room, which I call the victim closet, where we always had to wait for hours in order to be called in. And I remember my advocate was there, and she gave me this, like, um, long blue wiener dog that had, like, all these spikes and was, like, squishy. And I was like, why is she giving me this? And um, she's like, take it in with you. And I was like, okay. And then she was like, also, put your feet on the ground flat if you ever feel overwhelmed, because that'll help you feel grounded. And I was like, what is she talking about? Like, of course my feet are on the ground and I don't need the wiener dog. And you're but, telling the truth. <laughs> yeah, I, you just go in and do your thing. And, but then like the double doors open and the judge is sitting there. And again, it's the signals you receive 
he's sitting at the highest point in the room. So already you're like, he is the ruler. I'm inferior. When you sit in the testimony stand, it's like this little box. You feel boxed in. There are no windows. And then my assailant is sitting feet away from me with his defense attorney and his whole family. And I remember my whole side was basically empty. My boyfriend couldn't enter the room. My sister couldn't enter the room because they were also witnesses. So they were never allowed to hear what I said. And the first time I testified, I didn't let my parents in the room because I wanted to protect them. And, oh, God, damn, you really asked a hard question. I remember looking at the empty seats. <laughs> oh. you, you don't have to talk about anything that you don't want to talk about. Oh, yeah, no, it's good. But I just remember thinking, like... You just have to actively remember that you are still tethered to society. And you also have to remember that the environment is not built for you to succeed. Like, you are actively being isolated. You are actively receiving signals that are meant to threaten you and make you afraid to keep going or make you afraid to say anything when your attacker is sitting there. I'm emotional because I'm looking out and there's all these seats filled. <sighs> it's just such a nice contrast. But um, what was the question? Oh, my. <laughs> that was my, oh, my first memory in court. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is also like a legal trial or a legal process in some ways is like a battle for the narrative, right? Who yeah. gets to control the truth and who gets to, who gets to, you know, make that um, their story. Yeah. And this was, again, a kind of problem for you because the media by this point had gone, like, ballistic on the identity of your assailant. Yeah. Um, you know, he was this young man with such potential and he was this swimmer who was wanting to be a surgeon and, you know, he came from this great family and it was just this thing that he did that was like, you know, what guys do? And, yeah. and this was a really dominant narrative and it's hardly surprising that it got traction because it's a really old narrative. Yeah. And meanwhile, you were the victim behind the dumpster. Yeah. You know, and, and that, I think, was something that they really played on, right? Yeah. yeah, no, from the very beginning, you know, he was part of a school. He was part of a swim team. There was always this sense of belonging, and it always felt like he was missing from something. Like, he is an active participant in society, and now he's deviated from that, but it's only temporary because ultimately he belongs to these greater institutions and programs. And, um, and it was so strange that I, I never felt like I belonged to anything. Like it was not implied that I had been extracted from a life or a family or things that I was doing. You know, I sort of just appeared as this body that had been found. And was and photographed. And, and was, was photographed and, like, put on a projector like this for everyone to sort of evaluate, like, that is her left butt cheek, you know, photo 43. Um, and I could never grow beyond that. I wasn't allowed to. 
Yeah. Um, there was also a kind of um, attitude by the defence. Well, there, there, are, there was a lot going on, but I think that there was an expectation that this wasn't um, something that was part of his script. Like, as you say, it was an aberration. Um, and I think the entitlement of him and his family, I mean, he never said sorry. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Um, but then in terms of this, like, desire to control the narrative, the other thing that they really played on was the fact that you couldn't remember. Yeah. You know, that was like, that they were allowed to make that story then. Yeah. How was that for you? Um, yeah, like you said, they treated it like a single incident rather than something that changed the entire trajectory of my life. Um, and with memory, I believed them for a long time that I didn't have anything to offer. Like, I remember crying because I felt so bad that my prosecutor was staying up all night to prepare the case. You know, the Swedes were missing school to come in. Like, lab technicians were all coming in to fight for me. And then the microphone goes to me, and they're like, what do you remember? And it's like, nothing. You know, like, I felt like I, I gave nothing to my team. Um, and this idea was, like, pounded onto me again and again by the defense. Even if my prosecutor was asking me questions, he, I would answer, and he'd say, objection, she has no memory. And I'd have to stop talking. And eventually, that it made me just, like, slowly back away and be like, maybe he's right. But in the process of writing this book, I just slowly realized I don't care if there's a hole in the story. It's still my body that I have to live in every day. And beyond that, I'm observing things all the time. You know, nothing is getting lost on me. Even if I'm weeping and snotty during trial, I still see you looking at me. I still see the reporters scribbling. Like, all of this get, is getting taken in, and all of it is just as important to the story. And so when they'd say, she has no memory, I was like, I have 400 pages of memories. I'm about to drop on you. <laughs> um, and it's really important to, to realize your story is no less valid just because you have a piece missing. It's your body. Um, and your body knows something's wrong even if you can't verbalize it. You know, that's why when they'd ask me questions, like, my body would be speaking. I wouldn't be able to form words, but all of a sudden, I couldn't breathe. That's my body answering the question that was just presented. Um, so you have all that information. Maybe you can't verbalize it in that linear, perfect, you know, thing they want you to deliver. Um, but that doesn't make it any less valid. One of the things that was happening at the same time was that this, the trial was being reported, of course, and, you know, reporting happens online now and there are comments, and the comments were looking for ways to make you complicit mm -hmm. in your own attack because you couldn't remember yeah. and pointing at, you know, the fact that you were so irresponsible and what kind of girl gets herself into that state um, and how, you know, and this wouldn't happen to me, like, yeah. like you know, from men and women. Um, how... One of the things I loved about your book was the absence of shame. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, I, you do not take that on 
like for a moment. Yeah. That was conscious though, was it? Or yeah. It, I mean... I mean how, how did you kind of play that sort of it's your fault narrative? Yeah, I mean, so one thing I hadn't anticipated, we talk a lot about like the external forces that sort of dismiss you or attack you. We really talk about the survivor attacking herself. And that was really fascinating to go through is that the defense didn't even really have to convince the jury of anything. He just had to turn me against me, like slowly break me down until I felt like, oh, I don't even have a right to speak. Or like, why am I here? Or everything I said, I would second guess. And then all of a sudden, like all my certainty was gone and I was just full of self-doubt. And I became my worst enemy by the end because I didn't trust anything I said. And I lost so much of my confidence. And um, that's one thing that I know I'm capable of reversing for myself and for other people. So even if I can't turn down the volume on all the external attacks you're getting, if I can get you to stop doubting yourself and to wake up that little thing and put the shame to bed and slowly realize like, oh, I'm being made to believe these negative things about myself or, oh, like all of this is being distorted. Oh, I hate myself because I've been taught to hate myself. As soon as you come into that realization that you've literally been trained and conditioned to question your story and to minimize what has happened, then you're like, as soon as I identified it, I could squash it mm. and just say, I'm, I'm done with that. I understand what you've been doing this whole time. Mm. You've been manipulating me this entire time and I'm done. And I always talk about how I saw him doing it to my sister and I saw it working. Like I saw her thinking that it was her fault and that it was so clear to me that it wasn't. So that's when I went to like destroy mode and that's when my anger like totally surpassed my fear. And all of a sudden, this like attorney who has like degrees and like a suit, I don't care. I was so mad. Um, and I like cried so much in public, which a lot of people can't do. And I, I just like pride in myself. Like, he can sit there and grill me, but I bet you he can't, like, weep in front of people. <laughs> I think that that is a really common experience for survivors. I mean, you write in your book, pain when examined closely became clarity. I knew what the attorney had come here to do and I would not let it happen. He believed he could break us, but from this day forward, I would begin to build. And you know, let's just take a moment there. Like what we're describing is a legal system. You know, this, that, that lawyer was doing his job. Like he was literally doing his job. That is terrifying yeah. when you think about it. So it wasn't, just what was going on in the courtroom for you. Like, like this was a really drawn out process and you had to wait ages. It wasn't like, you know, there was the attack and then like two weeks later there was the court case right. and then there was like, this, this was an astonishingly drawn out process that had a massive personal impact yeah. on kind of every aspect of your life, right? 
One of the things that you write about is um, the way that the everyday changed mm. for you. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what it is, what some of those small things that yeah. were changed? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember I started seeing a therapist and she asked me the same question. Like she's like, has the assault affected your life? And I was like, nah. <laughs> and she's like, uh, she just didn't say anything and waited. And I was like, interesting. <laughs> like, and I was sitting in this like huge black coat that like covered my hands. It was my boyfriend's coat that I'd been wearing every day. Um, I didn't think about how I was like actively hiding all the time. I liked feeling lost inside my clothing. Um, the not sleeping, the crazy outbursts I would have, you know, that slipped out of nowhere over little things. You know, there was times, yeah, I felt like I was losing my mind, the inability to focus. You know, there were so many, everything was slowly eroding and it was all just catching up to me very slowly and I was in denial because I so badly wanted my life and I wanted who I was before. And I couldn't, I hadn't figured out yet a way to live with what happened in a way that I could be okay with or proud of or I didn't know how to let what happened feed my identity in a positive way, mm. which it does now. Like to that become anger. the protagonist. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the anger is good for me now. One of the other things that you talk about, um, you know, and, and one of the things that I think is really moving um, is one of the everyday things that was gone was like an idea of being unguarded, a carefreeness, mm. you know, a sense that you could make plans, that, yeah. you know, you, you, you call pl future plans sugar cube ideas because they dissolve yeah. when they're under the hot water of the court. That sort of... Um, abstract loss. Is that sort of harder to regain? Yes. I talk about how in college I would go skinny dipping in the ocean at night and it was like the best thing. It was like this endless expanse of sea and a little dot of moon and we'd be swimming naked and like draping seaweed over each other and that's something I don't think I could do now because if something were to happen to you, naked on a beach at night, you would have no chance. Like, you'd be done. Um, and that's how I evaluate everything. Like, will I have enough evidence in this scenario? Mm -hmm. And often, if I don't have enough, then I won't do it. You describe buying a bottle of gin to take to a party. Yeah. And thinking better remember this brand just in case. Totally. And when I, you pour a glass of alcohol, you know, they would ask me, like, say I'd have a cup of beer. Well, is it one-third full, two-third full? You know, if you had champagne and whiskey, which did you sip that one first and then sip this one and then sip this one? And at what time? Was it 11.15 or 11.17? Nobody lives like that. And, you know, I say in the book, my therapist said, you cannot live under this level of scrutiny. And even though I still hear those questions, I still feel this, like, omnipresent jury. I can, I can turn them away. I can choose to keep living, even if it's still there. 
There's another thing I wanted to say mm. that I forgot. Oh, I can't help you with the forgotten part. Um, you, we were talking about like what you have to remember about the idea of a future, about um, about those kind of ephemeral, those those those. those oh yeah. Oh, it's quite sad. Um, I I think after it happened, like I expected, I expected certain things. Like I expected Stanford to reach out. You know, I expected an apology from my attacker. And I think I had so much trust. I had so much trust in my hometown. I had trust that the institution cared what happened to me and wanted to protect me. And when none of that materialized, so much of that trust got broken. And so many belief systems I had about how the world, about my place in the world that I didn't even realize I had until they were gone. And it was so difficult to, just so scary to... to what should have protected you? Yeah, it didn't. And didn't. When it was and tested. Wouldn't. Yeah. And that's, that's really hard to articulate and it's hard to retrieve and it's something we don't really talk about. We, we tend to just focus on the physical because it's so concrete. Um, but that's what trauma is, you know, sort of a breaking of so many of your belief systems, being put inside a world where you no longer understand the rules. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to learn to navigate that new world. So tell me about the day that the jury read, delivered their verdict. Mm. Delivered its verdict. Yeah. Where to begin? They read it on a piece of paper, like an award ceremony. <laughs> um, yeah. So I got the call. I go in. So when I heard guilty, oh. yeah, it felt like relief. And when they read out each felony, they go to each jury member to say, what was your personal vote? Even though it's unanimous, so obviously they all voted yes, they still make them say it. So they read the first count, and it was like, yes, 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 yes. Second count, yes, 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 yes. And I was sitting there. And like listening to these yeses just like raining down on me. But I was hit with this like sadness because it was suddenly this validation of something that I already knew but had forgotten. Like that clarity that it, that it was wrong and of course you shouldn't have been assaulted, and of course he knew what he did because he literally ran away. Over the course of a year and a half, I had like drifted from the self that knew all those things, and the person sitting there like waiting to be told the verdict was this hollow person who was so hungry, who needed that external validation. And it was so sad to me when finally they were like, yeah, you're not crazy. Then I was like, well, why did I spend a year and a half hating myself? Why did I spend a year and a half letting me think that I was crazy? And 
I hope that like, just in anything I do, like I made a promise to myself that day, even like being an artist, I'm not gonna wait for anyone to do the yes, 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 to one day realize like, oh, I am good at drawing. I should have been drawing this whole time. Why was I waiting? You know, to like give myself that every day and to not waste any of that time thinking otherwise, because you don't wanna get to the end of your life and be like, I did deserve to swim naked. You know, I did deserve to be an artist and to be healthy and to be treated with respect, you know? And the sooner you can just give yourself that, the happier I will be. So you had a guilty verdict, unanimous guilty verdict, and the case was, you know, like it was, it was done, right? Like, like, like you, were, you were done with it. But then there was the sentencing, and this is the thing. It's like, yeah, not yet. We're not done with you yet. Yeah. Because the assailant got sentenced to six months, um, which was commuted to three months through sort of a, like, you know, a good behaviour system yeah. that they have in California. So three months, right? And you write in your book, um, my pain was never more valuable than his potential. In summing up, the judge spoke heaps of the potential of this guy and what was going to be taken from him. And his lack of, his, his, his total empathy with him and his lack of empathy with you was really startling. What did you do then? I mean, I th when I was writing this statement, I was like, okay, finally, you know, the verdict had been delivered. We had two months until the sentencing. I wrote the statement in about a week. Oh yeah, that's, that's, sorry, that's an important bit that I yeah. accidentally jumped over. So Chanel, is there anybody here who has not written, uh, read Chanel's victim impact statement that was You shared? can go. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Certainly no one who's prepared to admit it. <laughs> um, so, 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 so you all know it. You all probably like me, read it, cried, air punched, just <laughs> like, um, sorry. I just needed to make sure that we were all on the same page with that. The statement. Yeah, so I was writing it, and then, you know, his side, you know, he got about 40 letters from people in his community to write on his behalf. I didn't have as many letters because, like, two people in my life knew. But I was like, it's okay, I got this. Like, and I thought the whole time, the whole issue was that they just couldn't hear my whole side of the story. Because testimony, it's so stifling. You can't really truly speak openly. So it's like, oh, it's just a matter of making it known and then it, everything will be okay. And then to read it, and I felt good when I read it, I felt good when I sat down, and then have it ignored. I hadn't even been preparing for that. And that was an entirely new feeling of like, oh, it wasn't a matter of them not hearing you. They heard you. It just doesn't matter. Mm. And oh, I just never want anyone to have to, to feel that. Because where do you go from there? Like, I remember going home, and my family was angry, and everyone's like, it's okay, we're going to keep fighting. And I was like, no, I'm... I'm I'm done fighting. Like, that was everything I had, and I don't understand what else I can do or say. 
oh, that was a dark night. And so, yeah, I mean, I talk about how I'm very proud of who I am and where I am now, but there are many times where I did give up on myself. Like that night I was like, I'm done writing, you know? Like I, I failed. And the only reason I am here is because other people refused to give up on me. And, you know, the statement went out the next morning and just like, then it took off. And yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll come back to the statement and what happened then. But I just want to take a moment um, because we've been really focusing on the process. But another thing that was going on in the background was your incredible family. You know, your sister went through a horrible time with this. Um, I mean, you all did, but your sister particularly, I think. And you write about how protective you were of her. But I want to talk about your mum. She is like a force of wisdom. Like, like she, she's like Yoda in this book. Um, <laughs> tell me about her background and how that was important for what you decided to do once the statement had been read and you had this choice about whether to turn that into something bigger yeah. or whether to stay anonymous. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's always... The way she perceives me has always been like so big and not in a way that's like, oh, you have to fulfill this success, whatever. It's just that like the way she sees me is big and powerful. And as I grow up, I feel like I've just slowly grown into this idea of me that she already has or has seen for me all my life. And she came from China when she was about 26 almost my age now. After the Cultural Revolution, right? Yeah, yeah. After the Cultural Revolution, you know, she f is a writer. She felt really oppressed, came to America because she wanted to speak freely. Um, she's the one who taught me that it is a privilege to be able to talk back. And when you have the opportunity, take it. Um, because that's our right. I was almost going to say here, but we're not in America. <laughs> but it's also great here. Um, yeah, and she was the one who said, you know, like, I had a total breakdown one time. Well, many times, but like, one. This anyway, one time. This one time I had a breakdown. <laughs> and, and she was telling me about how when she was young, she'd never even, she didn't even know what a swimming pool was, had never seen one, you know, and now, she raised my sister and I in a house with a swimming pool and border collies and orange poppies growing on the side of the highway when we had a convertible. And she's like, I literally could not have imagined this or projected herself into the life that she had. And she's like, and the same applies to you. You know, right now you feel isolated in this court system and you're being suffocated by these mean people um, but that won't be your life. And, and you probably can't imagine your life. You can't imagine that you'll be inside this, like, this, this <laughs> Sydney Opera House um, <laughs> uh, full of wonderful people. And she was completely right. 
And her, um, you know, career as a writer, I think, was really instructive to you. I mean, you know, when you put out that victim impact statement, you know, there were people, including the judge and including a bunch of people who went on record saying that you hadn't written it, because how could you possibly have written it? You know, and, and this sort of idea that you... This patronising idea that a victim somehow couldn't have a voice in totally. that was articulate in that kind of way. Um, but you sort of refute that in the book. Well, I literally wrote a book <laughs> to refute it. <laughs> so, you wrote a book, Chanel. Yeah. <laughs> well done. And, and, <laughs> and I think that like, it's, it's also interesting to think about why you did that, because it wasn't just writing a book, right? Yeah. Um, it was a decision to not be Emily Doe anymore, which was a pseudonym that you had used throughout this time. You told almost no one you knew. I mean, like you were kind of crazily secretive about this. Yeah. So what was that transition? Like, what was that about? Um, the secrecy and then the coming out. Yeah, I think uh, I really, I, I, I was so scared in the beginning. If anyone found out about this, my life is over. That's what I believed. I will never be perceived the same. People may not engage with me the same way. I would lose people. I would be judged by people. Um, that's a really sad way to think about it. As I was writing, you know, I wrote the first draft just about the assault in the case, and I submitted it. And my editor came back, was like, hey, why don't we introduce like some of your family members? Because it's a memoir. So I was like, okay. And little by little, I let in different parts of my life and who I am. And the assault eventually became embedded in this greater story. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it, it revolves around the assault, but ultimately it's about me and everything I'm experiencing and feeling as a human being. And by the end, I knew that it didn't define me. You know, I, I am this full spectrum of experiences, and you can't deny that. And I also understood if you can't see that, then that's now your problem and not mine. Um, so I just thought, that's it, you know, I'm, I'm ready. Was there something about looking at the bigger picture too? Because that's another thing that your book does, you know, it really contextualizes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because when you are assaulted, your world shrinks like this and you're alone so often. And all you're doing is thinking about the teeny tiny details of that night and all the little things that are wrong with you. I call it like a mobile, like you just sit under this mobile of self-blame and that's the world you're in for a long time. And little by little, when I had friends talk about their assaults, when I talked about um, different things in my life that like microaggressions and other things I'd experienced, I was like, there's a common thread running through this. And I think our power happens when we slowly back away and get out of our tiny 
corner that we've been confined to and slowly realize, whoa, we're all in our little corners. We've all been sent there for self-punishment. Like, what are we doing there? Who sent us to these corners? Did they send um, ourselves? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And when I was able to back away, you know, the end of the book is much more about societal commentary. It's a full zooming out. And when you're able to zoom out of your own small story and see the common thread through all of our stories, that's when you feel healed because I know that I'm tied to so many people. I know that there's so many layers, painful layers of myself that are mirrored in other people. Um, and that makes it easier to live with because we're all, look at us like all getting on, you know? So you've, you know, become super public about this and that has created, you know, a big, public profile for you now you're mm -hmm. sort of recognized um you know and all of these people have a relationship with you um how is that kind of dealing with that sudden public persona been you know you're on oprah yeah <laughs> um really good because you know i received so much positivity in the letters and i called it like medicine, like reading people's letters and letting that sort of reinform my identity. But being able to be face to face with people and really hear what they're saying and just feel this presence. Like you can't deny this. You, it, you can feel what the room feels like. And they can't gaslight like you about this one. Yeah, yeah, and I know that it's real. And so much of the you know, negative online comments that were like barraging me, I gave them so much room and such a loud voice in me for a really long time. But when I'm actually in the world and interacting with people, where are they? You know, they, don't, they can't even be in the light. Um, they're somewhere in a basement, like eating Cheetos, and <laughs> I'm here enjoying myself. So I just feel much better. So we're going to go to questions. Um, there are mics on either side of the theatre, which you can make your way to, and there are questions coming through, maybe. Um, but while you're getting ready, Chanel, I might just ask you to read one more thing off the back of what you just said, um, which I think is a good thing to have in our minds as we're thinking about okay. asking our questions. The barricades that held us down will not work anymore. And when silence and shame are gone, there will be nothing to stop us. We will not stand by as our mouths are covered, bodies entered. We will speak. We will speak. We will speak. Thank you. So, is that a question there? And if we could, we don't have a huge amount of time now, so if we could try and keep our questions quite short, because there are a lot of people, I imagine, that have questions to ask. Hi. Um, so, like, I followed your case religiously, and then when last year I found out you'd Re revealed your identity, written a book, were coming here, I was like so excited, and then kind of had to take a step back and 
it's really conflicting to be like, you're like a celebrity to me or like an idol because you were a rape victim. So the question was kind of around, and you kind of just touched on it, but one, how terrifying was it to actually make that decision? And has the expectation, I guess guess when you made the decision to kind of become public with it, that was a big decision for you. And has the expectation been like as scary as you thought it was going to be? Has it been more amazing than you thought it was going to be? Like how, how has been dealing with that kind of stardom been? Yeah, I mean, the year leading up, last year, leading up to making the decision was really scary. And it's like my family was preparing for war almost. Um, we had talks with my whole legal team. We installed security cameras in my house, like had so many discussions. Um, and it was really scary. I wanted to, I wanted to emerge and then if it didn't work out, just like slowly backpedal away and go back. Um, But what's strange is that once I made the decision, there was this feeling of peace. Like I think the agony was in was in trying to to figure out what would happen, which was ultimately out of my control. But I remember the night before, I knew that night by morning my name would be there. And I just put my phone on do not disturb and I went to sleep. And it was this moment of like, whatever happens, I just felt so grounded in who I was. And I know that I had an anchor, which was the book, of like everything I could say is there. And it's in a book that's being distributed everywhere. So even if you like burn one, Like, even if you got rid of all the ones in the United States, they're here. And I just, like, I guess that also made me feel quite invincible. Um, Like, yeah, no matter what happens to me, I can't be silenced because my voice is now everywhere. Um, And, yeah, it it was oddly tranquil. And then again, the response has been so positive. And I talk a lot about how that can even be difficult. Like receiving a compliment can be hard. And I actively think like there's a little shield in you and just like shift over that shield for a second, like over your heart, just like let the good things come in, stop pushing them right back. And um, so really it's just been learning how to absorb nice things, (laughs) yeah. There's a question here from Evelyn um, who asks, did you feel you um, losing your anonymity helped foster a conversation about sexual assault within communities of people of colour? And I think that that actually, you know, race played a really big part in this, you know. I mean, your assailant was white and super privileged. Um, You're a woman of colour. I feel like if he were not white and super privileged, the whole story would have played out way differently. What role do you think race played in this whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I remember going through the court documents and seeing that someone had checked that the victim's race was white. And that to me indicated they didn't even care to ask or even imagine otherwise. They had literally decided my background for me and dismissed an entire part of me. Um, And I was so done with, with just having my narrative be defined by other people. So, yeah, it did play an extremely important role. And even, you know, seeing, I wanted to grow up seeing more Asian Americans. 
as writers and in mainstream and in pop culture and... And as protagonists. As protagonists, which is still quite rare. Um, and yeah, so for many women of color, we have to like imagine ourselves into these, into these roles, become the roles we wanted. <laughs> I think there's a question over here. Yes. Hello. Yes, sorry. <laughs> um, my question is in relation to the college campus and Stanford and college campuses in general, because in your book you speak about how Stanford's lack of reaching out to you did lead to this betrayal and invalidation. And I guess it's my question is, if they had reach out, reached out to you and shown some sort of comfort, do you think that would have helped you in some way and do you see a future where college campuses not just in America in Australia too and other countries take a greater responsibility in assaults that are happening all the time yeah number one just being more transparent about the reality of what's happening on campuses and acknowledging that they're happening at all um, I felt like as soon as he was off campus they decided their work was done it would have made an immense difference because the courthouse is like a mile away from campus. And I had to keep coming back um, to testify. And if it had felt like a warm home or a safe place where I could go to restore, or if I felt like I was being supported I wouldn't have felt so alone in my own hometown. And instead, it became this huge area of avoidance. And literally driving through my town or driving to court, I would take these long routes just so that I wouldn't have to touch campus. That's sad. And I talk about in the book, like, their silence was a presence. It was a constant reminder of something large and powerful that was completely dormant while I was one person who was really vulnerable fighting my assailant. And it bothered me when they finally released a statement much later that said, you know, we're very proud of our graduate students, the Swedes, which obviously good. But to take credit for their actions and not take credit for their other students' actions they don't get to pick and choose. Yeah. There's a question here from Scarlett, who says, I spent two years in court after a gang rape. Now, if another victim asked, I would advise them to avoid pressing charges. Mm. What would you advise, and was it worth it? I would say, number one, if a victim ever comes to you, the most important thing is not to say, go to police or you must do this, you must do that, but simply lay out options. Give her the agency to decide however she may proceed. Know that there's no right way. Um, you have to do what's best for you, and that's okay. Um, oh, I feel like I need to say something hopeful because I can't just say like, ah. I don't, I don't think you have to feel like you have to be hopeful about sexual assault and gang rape, actually. <laughs> um, 
you know, I think it's okay to... But, but do I you do think for you, was it worth it? Now it is. Well, because I was finally able to treat it... Like, when I was finally able to look at what happened objectively, and instead of saying, all this stuff happened to me, I thought of it as, oh, now I have all this information about what it was like inside. You know, I started, like, instead of thinking of myself as the victim of this case, I was like, oh, I'm a reporter. Like, I'm a civilian who's been selected to undergo this process, and I got a VIP access pass, and now I can take everything I've learned and spread it out. Mm -hmm. And then when it was received, I thought, okay, that information was worth something. Um, I, think, I think you've answered the question. Thank you. Yeah. Are, are we happy with that? Yeah. Um, one last question. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so in the justice system, I want it to be worth it. And I want, oh, what do I want? I want us not have to fight for our own humanity. Mm. I think that's it. I think that if, if reform comes, and I think why this has been important is that, you know, your judge was recalled by yeah. a lot of the people of California. Um, you got the law changed, so now there's a, a three-year um, sentence, like, you know, mandatory sentence for people who assault an unconscious victim. So, yeah. I mean, this is real. Like, this is going to change stuff for other people. Yeah. And I think if there is a worth it, it is in the potential for change, but I do think people have to weigh up the cost for themselves. Yeah. And know that it's not going to be easy. That. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one last question. Uh, well, first of all, thank you just for writing and for being here. And just thank you. Um, you talk in your book about having been in Santa Barbara during the shooting and seeing what men, some men, when their power is taken from them, when they feel threatened, when they're not getting what they're entitled to, what they're capable of, and that you were really scared of that and wanted to make sure that your assailant got help and didn't go that route. Um, can you elaborate on that and also talk about what would you tell victims and survivors or bystanders, witnesses, anyone who's worried about coming up and saying something because of that type of retribution? Yeah, I mean, when people are like, why don't victims report? It's because we want to be able to be alive. Like, safety is a huge and legitimate concern. Like she said, like, six months before the assault, I was still in school, and there's a shooting a few months before graduation. A guy had come, literally said, I hate you girls, and I'm going to slaughter you, and killed six people. This is the incel. Which, um, uh, I don't, I don't want to name these people. I know. Because, like, uh, was, yeah. Mm. And I was with six other girls that night. We locked the doors. We were hiding in an apartment. And then graduation happened, and I went home. And I just remember thinking, I just need to get on with my life. I need to find a job, and I need to like leave that terror behind. And then six months later, I was assaulted. And in the book, I finally connect the two. Of There are people in this world who say, I want what I want, and I'm going to take it no matter what. I want what I want, and I don't care what you want. And if you, I don't get it, you will pay. That's the lesson I learned. Um, so it's so, your fear is so legitimate. Oh my god, now I also have to say something hopeful. <laughs> 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 
You know, but fear is legitimate. And I, think, I, I don't think that actually is without hope because I think through fear we find courage and through courage we find our voices. And by speaking these sorts of things publicly, we realise that we're not alone and we have a powerful voice and we can roar, you know, we can talk about these things and we talk about our pain. Also, when guys are like, ah, oh, like you damaged... Like, the fact that we risk our well-being and they fear their reputation getting damaged and we fear... Our lives. Our lives. Like, think about that. (laughs) You've done it again! Okay, no hope in this session. (laughs) Sorry, you guys, but... No, I think this whole session has been incredibly important and hopeful. And thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming and sharing this with us today. Um, I think it's been such a good thing to hear and to be part of. So, Chanel Miller, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.